And so if you'll join with me in turning to John 15, we're going to read today the first 11 verses of this chapter. Notice these words, very famous words. This is Jesus' last night with his disciples. It's a very important night. He's saying some very important things. Notice these words. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let us pray. Lord, we again... Open your word to us. Would you illuminate our minds by the fire of the Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Sitting on a plane yesterday coming back from Orlando, I thought about vision. You see, I was surrounded by a lot of different people. Lots of different people. Packed in a plane all together. But even with all those differences of race and socioeconomic preferences, likes and dislikes, political views, with all those differences, there was unity. There was unity in the destination. We're all going to the same place. We all decided to get on a plane together to go to the same place. I thought to myself, what a great way to see vision and mission in a church. A church should not be made up of one type of people, but rather differences. Many, many differences. Because quite frankly, the end destination is going to have all nations, all peoples, So we might as well jump on the plane now because we're all going to the same destination. And that's what vision does for us. And that's what we talked about last week. We're rallying around the great commandment, the great commitment, and also the great commission. 
And if you can rally under those three headings, hey, let's get on the plane. Because even with all our differences, we still have one destination. And that destination is not a place, but a person. Jesus Christ, our Lord. What I want to do is drill down just a bit into John 15 and uncover some things. Now, I'm not going to bore you with some of the study that I've done of John 15, but I would encourage you to dive into this book and give yourself to this book of John. And in particular, chapter 15, there are some nuggets there that if you discover and uncover, will go with you for the rest of your life. I'm going to be bringing out just a few of those. You know, in preaching, oftentimes we talk about it like this. When you go to a nice dinner, you don't want the guest, I mean, sorry, the host to come out and sit the food on the table and sit there and explain to you for 15 minutes how they made it. You just want to eat it. You want to taste and see that it's good. And then you want to leave. You don't really care how it was made. So I'm not going to bore you with the mechanics of how I got here, but I'm going to apply to you some things. I'm going to bring to the table some meat today that is for you. I've done the preparation, and now I'm bringing it to you, and I believe it is a word of God for you. You see, I believe that this is Jesus' keynote speech to his disciples. Remember, this is his very last night with the men that he decided to choose. After he fasted and prayed all night long, he decided to choose these 12 guys. He's put all of his eggs in this basket, and tonight is a meal with them that we still remember, John 13, where he washes his disciples' feet and said, if you're going to lead, you lead from your knees. You lead serving others. You lead washing other people's feet. Because if I'm the master and I wash my disciples' feet, then surely you do that to others. And he sets a course. And then from John 13 to 17, your Bible, really 14 to 17, the chapters there, turns completely red. If you have a red letter edition at least. It's Jesus' words continuously, unbroken, unfettered, unabridged. It's him talking very seriously about some things to his disciples that they're not going to understand. They don't have a clue about it at this point. But the one he's sending will remind them of this night. So much so that they wrote it down and we're reading it this morning 2,000 years later. What is the first thing he leads with? It's this. I am the true vine. And by saying that, he means that there are false vines. Elsie wouldn't have qualified it as the true vine. You know, as humans, we messed up if we see ourselves as a family. Our first parents, if you will, messed up by choosing the wrong vine. It's always fascinated me that the very first sin had to do with eating. It had to do with fruit. It had to do with choosing the right food to nourish our bodies. And God had given them one command. The one thing, right, that you were called to do. 
the one thing they were told not to do, they did. Because what the Bible says is Eve saw that it was good. Notice, she sees it's good for food, not God. It then says that it was pleasing to her eye. And that it was desirable for wisdom. In other words, she had justified in her head, this is good, it's pleasing, and it's desirable. She had her three points. And yet it wasn't to God. And ultimately, when she eats and then gives it to her husband, who eats without even justifying, they both fail God and the effect is disastrous for generations to come. Sin already in Genesis 3 is relational and affects everybody else. Which means that sin, even today, affects everybody else. Isn't it still the issue? Isn't it still our issue? We like to justify certain things. Surely that's good for me. Surely that's pleasing, and if it's pleasing to my eye, it must be pleasing to God, or else He wouldn't have created it. It's desirable to make me wise. One of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life was telling our kids, our teenagers, our college students to go sow their wild oats to get that out of the way. As if we are giving them over to Satan for a time. And hoping they'll come out the other end of the machine ready to serve God. I can tell you right now that the statistics are in. It doesn't happen. You know, sowing your wild oats is an idiom. It's a literary device. But it makes an idiot of you if you believe it. You like that one? (laughs) Worked on that one yesterday. You see, I have done it and you have done it. We've chosen the wrong fruit. We've chosen the forbidden fruit. We chose the fruit that we wanted to choose and not the fruit God says is for us. We are connected to the wrong vine And Jesus begins this little discourse with his disciples by saying, I'm the only true vine. All other vines are fruitless. All other vines produce wild grapes. Grapes that are soured and hard and inedible. But my fruit, my fruit is the kind that lasts. This vine language, by the way, isn't just arbitrary. He didn't just pick it out of nowhere. Instead, this vine language is not just found sort of in the Garden of Eden, but it's also found in Isaiah. So you thought we were getting away without a reasoning from Isaiah, but that's hard to do. Let me just tell you. It's hard to read the New Testament without hearing the New Testament Testament writers quoting from Isaiah because he's that important. And in Isaiah 5, there's this interesting little song. It's actually a song. Interestingly, it probably was a liturgical song, which means, kind of like a Christmas song, it's meant to be sung at a particular time to observe a particular feast, namely the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And the Feast of Tabernacles was the beginning of an eight-day celebration and feast. And this little song was supposed to be positive. It was supposed to be celebratory. So just imagine you're coming to a birthday party, you know, and you're thinking everybody's going to be singing happy songs. But then all of a sudden somebody goes off course and does something crazy and starts judging everybody. That's what Isaiah does. He brings the heat. He causes some turbulence to use a nice airplane word. He causes turbulence. He, he destroys this little love song in Isaiah 5. We don't have time to go to it and read it. But ultimately what he does, is he starts off real nice. He starts off kind of like an obituary that I read this morning uh, on social media of, of this lady who, who did it for her, her late father who just had died. And she starts off the obituary like most obituaries. Died this day, lived this long. But then she said things like this. She said, leaves behind two relieved children. And just, I mean, scorched him the rest of the time, saying he was abusive and all these other... In other words, the obituary took a turn for the worse. It took a turn toward judgment. And all of a sudden, it's surprising to us. And Isaiah 5 is that kind of surprise. You're just ho-hum going along through the service, and all of a sudden, somebody drops the bomb. And Isaiah does that. He comes out swinging, and what he ultimately says is this. The vineyard is Israel, and what you've produced is wild grapes, inedible grapes, grapes that are worthless. And if you know anything about a vineyard, a vineyard takes years to establish, which is why sometimes if you look at certain kind of wines, they're always from certain valleys because they produce certain kinds of grapes. And to get one established is a money-making machine in the first century world. In Jesus' world, the wine vineyard business was Super, super duper productive and profitable. And Isaiah looks at those people and he says, you're the vineyard that you think you're producing good fruit and you're not. You think you've got it all good. You think you're connected to the right vine and you are not. The love song has become a threat of judgment because Yahweh says, I'm done. I'm done with this vineyard. I'm going to come in and make it a wasteland. Because at the end of the day, to be going in the wrong direction, to be connected to the wrong vine, is not just a matter of reform, but it's a matter of complete destruction and renewal. You've got to tear the whole thing down, till back up the ground. There's no way to redeem it. Jesus picks up on this language and says, I am the true vine that represents God, not Israel. Israel failed just like we failed. So Jesus, he's the source. Jesus, he's the true vine that we must connect our lives into. He's the field that we need to be planted in. Not in what is pleasing to us. Not in what seems good to us. Not in what is desirable to us. We should learn from our first parents. Now the second sort of character here in John 15 is not only the vine who we meet first, but now the branches. For he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Did you catch that? You are the branches. In other words, you're actually essential to what it means to be a tree, to what it means to be a vineyard. 
God doesn't give us the dirty job of being down in the soil, but He gives us the nice job of producing the fruit to share. Isn't that crazy? He does the dirty work. He does the unseen work of the roots, the foundation, the source of life. We get to fly in the air. We get to produce the fruit. The stuff that people want. In other words, He gives us the good job. Not the bad job. So we are the branches. That's something to celebrate. We get to help out. Like the small child we've talked about that wants to help dad. Not much help, but he helps dad. So we get to help our heavenly father save the world. Because he's not going to do it without us. He tells us that plainly. He gives us the commission. He puts the weight on us. He lets us drive. That's crazy, isn't it? He gives us the crown. He gives us the authority. He gives us His joy, His love to share. Not to keep. Not to hoard. When we hoard it, it becomes a cesspool. Where no water's coming in, no water's going out. You know, I've drank water from a pool like that in Wyoming, the Bighorn Mountains, many years ago when I started seminary. We took a trip up there, leader, outdoor leadership class, and that was the only water source we had. And uh, boy, there, were, there was three guys of us that got super sick, super, super sick from that water because that water was stale and it wasn't what we call living water. You see, living water has a stream in and out which purifies it. Point being is this, when God gives us His grace, it's not meant just to keep and sit on. We're not saved to sit. When I went to India, the, the first sign they have at South India Biblical Seminary is saved to serve. That's their motto there at that seminary. We're saved to serve, not to sit. And so, we have, friends, an essential job as Christians. A necessary job to the vineyard. He hasn't given us second-hand stuff. He doesn't give us the leftovers. He gives us the full course. And He gives us first dibs. He takes the full brunt of anger and suffering and jealousy and sin. We just get the second-hand stuff. When you suffer, you're just getting second-hand suffering. He took the full brunt. But there's a third character. Not only the vine, not only the branches, but someone's wandering in the garden, in the vineyard, to maximize production. And who is that? None other than Jesus identifies as the Father Himself, who is the vine dresser. The King James says, the husbandman of the garden, of the vineyard. This is the same husbandman that was watching out for them in that first garden, in the Garden of Eden. And even though they turned away from God, even though they took of the forbidden fruit and found themselves isolated from God, 
isolated from each other, alienated from the blessing of God, of the garden, of each other, guess who comes looking for them? Guess who comes to rescue them? It wasn't them. It was God. Where are you, he says. And they're hiding, just like we hide from God. At least we think we do. But one day, there will be a day when we will meet him face to face. Oh, what a day for some, and oh my for others. You see, being a branch has its responsibilities. We're the branches. That means we have a responsibility. I want to give you three alliterated things that we as a branch are going to go through. The first is to be pulverized. You like that one? That's one that just kind of punches you in the face, isn't it? That's one of those words that you just see it happening when you say it. Pulverized. It even sounds tough. I looked up the etymology of the word, as I often do, and the word actually comes from the Latin meaning to make into dust. What better time to talk about being ground up into dust than now? Just a few weeks before Dust Wednesday, when for many of you, I will take ashes and I'll do the sign of a cross on your forehead and I'll say, from dust to dust. Because that's what we are. Dust and a mixture of divinity. We have the spark of the divine and yet we are a pile of dust. Dirt from the ground. The scripture says this, we've all been bad. We've all been wild. We've all been the grapes that are inedible. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You want a definition of that? Well, 15 and 8, verse 8 of this chapter says, By this my Father is glorified. In other words, this is what glorifies my Father. Is this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You can prove that you're a disciple by what you're producing in your life. If what you're producing is death, nothing, destruction, or nothing at all, then you're not connected to the vine that produces fruit. Because this vine, once you get in it, oh, it's going to go and produce much fruit. I rode the Hulk at Universal. It's a, it's a, it's a roller coaster. And most roller coasters, they kind of... And everybody starts screaming, right? This one said... Boom! And the Hulk just went upwards... And, I mean, you couldn't even, did all this corkscrews, all this kind of crazy stuff. It was nuts. Because once you got on, you were going to go through it. Now, I could have said, excuse me, excuse me, can somebody get me off this thing? But, fortunately, once you're on that thing, you're going to go to the end. And when you get connected into the vine, it's going to happen. You're going to start loving people in a way that you can't conjure up yourself in a way that you can't tie your bootstraps and pull it up let's do this no it's going to overflow from your life you're going to find a new love for people you're going to find forgiveness for people you're going to find joy 
in life and in God when you get connected to the vine. But you see, the problem is we're connected to the wrong vines. And in order to fix that, it has to be cut down. It has to be pulverized. This is why Jesus himself will say, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't go to the supermarket after he said that. He went to a place called the Skull, Golgotha, and he died. And then he rose again and he said this, I want to give you that same kind of life, resurrection life. But the only way to be resurrected, my friends, is to die to yourself. Die to whatever it is you're connected to. I don't know what it is. You know God knows. That's what matters. Cut it off. Do away with it. Let's get on with the true vine, not these false impression impersonators. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff what happens in Genesis. You should study it and know it by heart. But in the creation story, God speaks and it happens. You know this. Day one speaks, it happens. Day two speaks, it happens. But on day three, he speaks twice. He tells the land to emerge. But then he speaks a second time to the land and he says, now I want you to produce. Day four comes, speaks, it happens. Day five, speaks, it happens. Day six, again, and by the way, they're paralleled. Two and one and three, two, five, three, six. They're all paralleled. Just go back and study it. And on day six, he says this. He says, now let there be animals, things with fur on them, And then, let there be humans. But then he speaks a second time. He says, now, I want the animals to multiply. I want the humans to multiply. He's speaking twice because he allows us now to participate in growing something. The sun doesn't grow anything. It just does its thing. Day in and day out. We just go around it. It shines. But us, no, no, we get to create. He gives us that. In other words, the creator creates by making created things creative. That's the plants. That's the trees. That's the wildlife. That's your pets. That's us. He gives us that double talk and gives us the charge to produce. And when we don't, he says, I will cut you off, and you will be separated from those who do. Just as at the final day, the goats from the sheep, the faithful from the unfaithful. You see, here's the reality. Either you'll be pulverized in this life for God's glory and resurrected by His life, or pulverized at the end and not resurrected to new life, but to eternal, eternal destruction and fire. Do I like that doctrine? Absolutely not. We should say it with tears in our eyes. But hell is eternal. It's lasting. What you do now matters eternally. Eternally. Jesus is the one who uses the language of eternal fire. It's not me. I wouldn't have said that. I just said temporarily burn them up. You're done now. He says eternal. I believe eternal when he says eternal. John the Baptist, doesn't he say it right? He says, I 
must decrease if God is to increase. That's what I mean by pulverize. Let's let God pulverize us back to dust, to who I really am. I think I'm something. I think I'm somebody. When Jesus says clearly, without me, you are nothing. Nothing. Not a little something. Not a little enough to get by. Nothing without me. That's quite a claim from a really nice guy. But he's also God and not just a nice guy. You see, God wants to grow something to share with the world through you, through the likes of you in your field, in your vineyard. He wants you to help Him. He wants to turn that dust into divinity, which is what He's doing. But the only way He can do it is to smash our idol that we've made of ourselves and make His own image in us. Not only does he want to pulverize us, the the vine dresser, the husbandman, but as he walks through, he prunes. In other words, some of you are bearing good fruit. But you know what? That's not enough for him. God is easy to satisfy, but he is very difficult to be done with. He doesn't want to be done with you. He's not going to stop until you're perfect. Anybody want to raise their hand and say they're perfect? That we can look at everything in your life and just follow you around? Didn't think so. Not including me. I'm getting my hands down. No, no, no. He wants to prune you. He wants to make you be Say, I'm doing great things. And God is doing these great, fantastic. He wants to maximize your fruit. He wants to make the best use of your time. He wants to make you perfect. And he's not going to stop until he does. You see, the kingdom economics work like this. We give up to get more. It's nuts. You give it away and more comes. It's insane. That's the way the kingdom works. Welcome to the kingdom. Less is more in the kingdom. Remember the little boy? He didn't have a catered meal. He just had a little snack. And God fed, through Jesus, 5,000 plus people. We bring our little snack to him. And he will multiply. We bring what little time we have to him. And he will multiply it. He'll redeem the time. I had him do that for me this weekend. He redeemed my time. I felt like I had a lot of time this morning when in fact I didn't. You see, we give it away in order to multiply it. And that's why he bids us to come and die. Because he can do the most with us. Notice this, catch this. He can do the most with us when we have nothing. In other words, he creates the entire world from nothing. We say ex nihilo, out of nothing. When we bring him all our stuff and we think we've got good works, he can't use that. We think we're wise, he can't use that. We think we're gifted, he can't use that. But when we have nothing and we bring it to him, just like the person in the Bible who beats on his chest and says, I'm just a sinner, Jesus says, that man went home justified. Not the one who prays with his hands in the air, getting all the glory. But the one who says, I have nothing. I am nothing. That's the one Jesus says will be lifted up. Because when we decrease, he increases. It's the only way of the kingdom. So let him cut you. Let him chisel you. Some of us want to be Mount Rushmore, but we don't want the hammer. 
Let him craft you into his image. Not a false image that you make up. Not an identity that you want to hold on to. Sit in your father's lap and let him dream over you. And show you what he wants to make of you. Because he wants to make something more beautiful than you ever even thought of. There's this story, it's not necessarily a real story, but it's a nice story. It's about a professional golf, a pro golf guy, I don't know what you call him. I don't, I don't know if I can bring myself to call him an athlete, but a pro, a pro golfer. And he goes, uh, uh, one of the Saudi kings invites him over to teach him how to play golf. So he flies him over, nice jet, all this kind of stuff. They play golf together, have a wonderful time. And at the end of that, the Saudi king says, look... I want to give you something for, for coming over here. I want to give you something big. You name it, and I'll give it to you. Just don't, don't even think about money or anything. Just, and he says, well, I don't, you know, just trying to be humble. He says, I don't really, really know what, what, you, what to give. You don't worry about it. You know, I, just, I enjoyed it. It's fine. This was enough. He says, no, I, I want you. I want to give you something to remember me by, to remember your time here by. He says, well, you know, I, I do collect golf clubs, so that would be nice. So he gets on a plane, goes back over to America. He kind of is wondering, I wonder what kind of golf club this would be, you know? Like, maybe diamond studded, pure gold. You know, who knows? I mean, coming from a Saudi king, anything's possible, right? Well, he, gets, he finally gets a certified letter from the king in the mail, but it's just a little envelope. And he's like, well, what, what is this? So he opens it up, not thinking much of it since he didn't get his golf club, but in fact it was the deed to a golf club. That was acres and acres big, super nice, all his. You see, we think small. The king of kings has access to everything. Who's to say he can't do it? Who is willing to say that God can't do it? He can do it way beyond and above what we ask or even think. We're thinking down here. He's thinking long term. He wants to prune. So when he wants to chisel away at your life, let him do it. And he'll bear much fruit through you. Now the last thing is this. He not only wants to pulverize our life, put us in the right field. Not only does he want to prune us, but he also wants to pluck the good fruit and share it with the world. In other words, what he's called you to do is meant to be shared. Not meant for you, it's meant to be shared. As we often say here at Harvest Point, apple trees don't grow apples for apple trees. Apple trees don't eat apples. It's meant for other people. Just as my pappy did, he used to have a huge garden. Why? Not just to feed his family, but to feed others. Granny would always cry when she prayed for others because she understood God's vision for our life, and that is others. Isn't that why Jesus came? So this morning... What are you really living for? What field do you honestly find yourself in? You say, I don't know that I can give it away. Money's tight. My time is tight. I just don't don't think I can give it away. The, The founder of Publix, if you like Publix, he was asked this question once. If you hadn't given, because he was a very giving person. If you hadn't given away so much, how much money do you think you'd be worth today? Without hesitation, he said, probably nothing. Because that's kingdom economics. When you give it away, 
God multiplies it. You keep it, he can't do anything with your life. Nothing with your life. If we're going to do anything as a church, we got to give it away. We got to give away our life. We got to give away whatever he says. If it's that particular sin we think is good, we think is desirable, let him cut it off. We're right here at Valentine's Day, and this is the closing thought today. Right here at Valentine's Day, you say, Does my beloved love me? Well, you can know if you love God. Here's how you obey him. To sit here and say, This is a good word. This is a good sermon. This was a good service. That doesn't show that you love him. As the song says, you got to put a ring on it. You got to do something. You got to obey. And Jesus even says in our text today, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The reverse of that is if you don't love me, you won't obey. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many years ago before he was martyred by the Nazis, said this, only, only the obedient believe. You say you believe in God? Only the obedient believe. If we are to believe, we must obey a concrete command. Without this preliminary step of obedience, our faith will only be pious humbug and lead us to the grace which is not costly. Everything depends on the first step, the step you make right now. It has a unique quality of its own. The first step of obedience makes Peter leave his nets and later get out of the ship. It calls upon the young man to leave his riches. Only this new existence created through obedience can make faith possible. Friends, do you believe? Or is it just in your head? If it is a true obedience, maybe today for the first time ever, you would step out a literal concrete stepping toward God and bow yourself to His Lordship, not yours. Are you willing to say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I've said it a million times. I'll say it again this week. I can't do it, God. I need your help. Are you willing to say that or are you okay in your little field producing nothing? Without the true vine, you can produce nothing. He calls us to abide in him. Do not delay. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Obey him. Abide in Jesus. Amen.